Lawrence, the Deputy Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to the ACRI podcast. One thing I've learned about studying the Australia-China relationship over the last few years is that there are some things about China that most Australians really like, but there are other things they really dislike. For example, we know from the Lowy poll, the 2016 Lowy poll, that Australians have a more positive view on China based on the Chinese people they have met. But start talking about the system of government and China's human rights record and the number crashes. Now, in these cases, both of them are related to the effectiveness of China's legal system. This has come up in Australia-China relations a few times in recent years. In March this year, for example, the federal government announced that it would not proceed with the ratification of an extradition treaty with China. The Law Council of Australia said that China does not act in accordance with procedural fairness and rule of law standards in criminal proceedings, so they couldn't support it. Critics of the treaty have also cited China's human rights record and treatment of defence lawyers as reasons for concern. Australian companies have gotten caught up in a very negative way in China's legal system in recent years as well. In one high-profile case in 2010, Rio Tinto executive Stern Hu was jailed for bribery and industrial espionage. Meanwhile, last year, 18 employees of Crown Casino were arrested for gambling crimes. In both cases, Australian media reported that staff of Australian firms were unlikely to receive a fair trial in China. So what does this mean for Australian companies and for Australian investment in China going forward? To discuss these issues, I'm joined today by Associate Professor Colin Hawes. Colin is the Director of Courses at the UTS Law Faculty. Now, his research focuses on the intersection between corporations, law and culture, with a particular focus on China. And he also serves on ACRI's Management Committee. Welcome to the podcast, Colin. Thanks. Colin, when you read Australian media coverage of China's legal system, such as the discussion around the extradition treaty earlier this year, and also when you observe Australian companies operating in China and some of the the problems they have when dealing with China's legal system, um, do you think in this country we have a nuanced understanding of what's happening with China's legal system? Um, Why is it important that Australia is able to get a firm understanding of these sorts of issues? Well, in terms of whether it's nuanced or not, I definitely don't think that many of the, the Australian media give a nuanced picture of China, in, especially when it comes to protecting people's legal rights. Um, there's this idea in many media reports about China that anybody who's arrested will not get their rights protected, that they'll be somehow spirited off to some secret location, that uh, they won't get a fair trial. Um, And although this happens in some cases, and we'll talk about those later, in the majority of cases, the situation has improved extremely uh, compared to, say, even 10, 15 years ago. And uh, that's what I refer to as like the two faces of the Chinese legal system, that there's um, a good side and a bad side, and they're both existing today. And we really have to know about both of them if, if... if we're going to be dealing with China, like if, if you're a business person going to China to invest or doing trade in Ch- with the Chinese corporation, you want to be more aware of how your legal rights will be protected, but at the same time how you can avoid getting into the kinds of situations that Crown Casinos got into, right. which which is pretty kind of obvious that they would have got into trouble. I mean, it's illegal to be gambling 
in China, except yes. in Macau. Um, and it's also illegal to promote gambling in China. And, and that was their main business, even though they tried to dress it up as sort of a resort kind of holidays in Australia. Um, it was pretty obvious that they would have got caught and, and at some point and uh, their employees would be arrested for doing something illegal. So, right. so, so you have to understand the Chinese legal system more deeply and the areas where you can expect predictability and other areas where you um, maybe need to be a lot more cautious. Yeah, okay. So, so your message is, I know we're going to dig into this in, in, in this podcast, but uh, from the outset is there are um, genuine areas of problems, but at the same time, um, we don't want to overestimate or overstate those because in doing that, we might actually be m- missing real opportunities. And there may be parts of China's legal system where you can actually pers- expect predictability and for your legal rights to be protected. Is that, is that a fair overview? Yeah, and the okay. situation has improved greatly right. for most people in China over the past 10, 15 years. Okay. All right, next question, Colin. Um, you recently delivered a, a conference paper that you titled China's Two-Faced Legal System. Now, I wanted to ask you about that. Two-faced, I'm assuming one face is a positive one and one's a, one's a negative one. Yes. Let's start with the positives. It's nearly Christmas. How has China improved its legal system recently, and what impact has this had on people's um, legal rights in in China? Yeah, so before I get on to that, I just want to talk about the two-faced thing, because there was some joke saying I saw once which said, uh, there are two kinds of people in the world. One kind divides the world into groups of two, and the other doesn't. (laughs) So the point is, it's a bit simplistic to say there's only two faces of Chinese the Chinese legal system because there's many different faces but in order to keep this podcast down to about less than two weeks <laughs> I think we need to just focus on two so uh, in terms of the positive I think um, there's been this huge increase in transparency in the Chinese legal system especially in the last five years and even just in the last two years there's been improvements so one example is the so-called Open Trials Network, China Open Trials Network. Uh, if you read Chinese, you can go to this website, which is called Zhongguo Tingshen Gong Kai Wang. And um, it's not in English, unfortunately, but um, it basically streams, video streams trials live in from courts all over China. And that includes civil trials, criminal trials, all kinds of disputes that are being decided by the courts. And uh, it started around 2015, I think it was, and now there's already about over 300,000 of these trials which have not only been streamed but archived on the website. So you can actually go there and watch these trials. And they're not edited versions. They're not like you see on the Chinese news, just some voiceover saying what happened in a brief report. It's like several hours of you know, witness testimony, the accused giving their version of events. Sounds like riveting viewing for a Friday <laughs> night, right? <laughs> well, it's, uh, if you can't sleep, it's a good way to... But, uh, you know, for, for the average viewer, it's not, it's not exactly the most exciting thing. But for people who are interested in the legal system, right. it's extremely interesting. So one example I watched a few weeks ago was a criminal trial uh, some people were accused of murdering somebody so that they could claim on insurance. So the the first question that, that the judge asked these accused, the four accused when they came in, uh, was, 
have you experienced any police brutality or violence? And that was quite surprising to me that they would ask that, you know, the yeah. first question in the court. If it was a trial that was not televised or video streamed, maybe the accused might be scared of giving a truthful answer about that because maybe right. even the police might be even sitting there right. in, the, in the court. Um, but because now it's clear that this, and the judge makes it clear this is being video streamed, um, you might be a bit less uh, afraid of telling the truth yep. about the treatment that you've had before you came to the trial. Yep. So, Colin, that transparency, I've got to ask, what is driving that? I mean, is this a, is this a genuine attempt to improve the legal system by China's government? I mean, for all its faults, is, is that the motivation here? Yeah, so when I talk to Chinese judges and people from Supreme People's Court in China, they say it's partly to try and wipe out corruption, mm -hmm. which has been a major problem not just in the courts but also in Ch Chinese among Chinese uh, government officials. Um, if you make things transparent, it's a lot more difficult for judges to judge uh, wrongly, and and they have to follow the procedures. Right. They have to protect people's legal rights, so that and and so they're less likely to be impacted by corruption from either the plaintiff, the defendant, or police or whatever. So, you know, you've got this public scrutiny of the judges. Mm. So it's a way to improve the quality of of trials right. and, and the performance of judges. At the same time, there's also a, a, an argument they make, and this is this is relates more to another big development, which is in the last three years, they've started publishing the judgments that they produce out after the trials. Mm. And there's a lot more of those published um, than, than the video streaming. So just uh, in the last three years, they set up this National China Judgments Network, which is Zhongguo Taipan Wen Shu Wang. And um, you can go there again. It's a website open to everybody, free. And you can go and check any court judgment, pretty much any court judgment from the last three years. And they've got about 34 million of them up already. Um, if you compare that with Australia, we have... Just, been... Sorry, just a casual 34 million, you said. Yeah, it? Just, okay. it just started in... in the last three years. Okay, so. not bad. It seems yeah. pretty impressive to me. Yeah, so, so if you compare the Australian uh, database of, of court judgments, which is called Ostley, that's one of the biggest, I think, uh, in Australia, they have about 800,000 um, judgments, court judgments, which, um, you know, it's... And that's been going since about 2000, I think, quite a long time. It's partly because, obviously, China has a huge population, so they're going to have more trials, more judgments written. But at the same time, it shows that this is not just a token effort. Mm -hmm. It's not just selecting a few representative cases like they used to right. for publication. It's like you all courts now have to send up their judgments to this central database as soon as they're, they're finalised. And then they're published. Right. So again, it'd be more scrutiny for judges, right? Yeah, because exactly. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, Colin, that's uh, nothing wrong with transparency, right? I think we've all we're all yeah, keen right. to see more transparency in China's legal system. But let's talk about the other face. You said there were two. Um, so I'm assuming there's a a less positive face. Um, can you talk us through some of the areas where China's legal system is still deficient, and you know some of the problems that Australian companies might have? in dealing with that system, or individuals for that matter? Yeah, so, I mean, part of the problem, I think, is that the Communist Party itself has not really made a huge effort to adopt the rule of law 
system that it advocates for everybody else. So, for example, when, when the Communist Party feels that somebody like, for example, a rights defence lawyer, that they are advocating for a group of people, maybe people suffering from hepatitis B, that's okay. one example, they got infected because of um, contaminated needles a while back and there's a whole group of hundreds of thousands of these people. And so some lawyers started advocating for them in the courts saying you need to compensate these people for because government officials were in charge of this blood donation thing where the needles got infected. So um, they didn't get very far in the courts and, and so the lawyers started to s sort of use social media campaigns right. and then to organise some... Uh, demonstrations outside government offices and gathering people to kind of these these groups who were sort of in trouble to try and um, you know get government officials noticing and and I guess also to try and get the courts to listen mm, to their mm. cases and actually mm. follow the law which they're supposed to do so the courts sometimes tend to avoid these difficult social issues because they know that the, the government doesn't like you know, to encourage right. social instability. So you mean they won't even accept them, Colin? Is that what you yeah, mean? Yeah, often they yeah. wouldn't even accept right. the, the right. cases. Right, Because okay. they say, we can't really decide these cases. It's a social issue, it's not a legal issue or whatever. Okay. So the problem is that organising people is something that the Communist Party does not like unless they're doing the organising. And so... They have arrested a lot of these lawyers who have been defending people, not just hepatitis, it's like migrant workers they've been defending. It's, um, you know, people who've been evicted from their homes because, in theory, the homes were illegally built. Mm, mm. It's just recently that's happened in Beijing again. I saw that. Yeah. yeah. So all sorts of these groups that have suffered under the rapid economic reforms, what mm. one scholar called Randall Pirenboom, he's called growing pains, mm. has caused lots of social disputes and instability mm. and that um, obviously will lead to legal disputes and the courts aren't happy to take them because they involve so many plaintiffs and it's quite a political issue right. the government should be sorting these things out but instead of helping them to deal with it in a sort of rule of law manner, yes. what they do is they arrest the people who are involved in these demonstrations, including their lawyers. Right. And right. there was a whole kind of group of over 200 lawyers in, who had defended people's rights were arrested uh, in the last two years and um, kind of campaigned to suppress them, basically, and they, they were not given proper legal rights. They were detained without trial for months, often, um, and there are reports that they under, underwent uh, torture, other kinds of sleep deprivation, mm. etc., to mm. try and force them to confess things that they probably yeah. hadn't done. Mm. And some of them have now been convicted, and others have just been released, but with a sort of threat that if you go back to this kind of rights defence, you're going to be arrested again. Mm. Colin, that's a, that's a pretty depressing state of affairs to, for someone like me listening to that, um, particularly when I think about looking forward. I mean, is there any hope of this changing going forward? Or if you don't use a rule of law approach to address these things, what, uh, is there another choice? Um, yeah, how right. do you think the government might handle this going forward? Well, I mean, the top leadership of the Communist Party has said since 2012, we want to properly emphasise the rule of law. We want to bring about more legal reform. Uh, nobody should be above the law. Um, part of the problem is that if you're defined as a kind of enemy of the people or enemy of the party, yep. 
then it's like you're put into a different category and you don't re receive those protections. Mm. So they need to get over that kind of distinction that they make between categorizing people mm. as your regular people, you get the protection and you're not. Yeah, they, they and need to get over that. it would be arbitrary to some extent, right? It is, yeah. and especially when there is corruption involved as yes, well. So yeah. for businesses, Australian businesses mm. or foreign businesses in China, sometimes they get into a commercial dispute with their Chinese partner who has good connections with the local government and then that leads them to get detained right? because they use the legal system, their power to, to get the, the police to detain people as a kind of bargaining chip. Yeah, so, okay. so, so, you know, that kind of uh, abuse of power is something that really has to be overcome. Now, having said that, I think there, there is a, a gradual improvement in terms of awareness of people's procedural rights. And some cases I've been studying recently have been produced by the Supreme People's Procuratorate, which is like the public prosecutor. They're the ones who prosecute crimes in China. And they, they basically have been um, producing these guiding cases, which are real cases, mm. but they're, they're circulated to all the prosecutors in China. Previously, the prosecutors basically just did pretty much what the police, they provided the suspects, the criminal suspect, and then they just basically accepted what the police gave them, including confessions and things like okay. that. So, but, but these guiding cases have made it a lot more um, that, that the prosecutors need to be a lot more careful about whether they actually charge people with crimes just based on confession. So, so there's uh, one example of this man called Wang Yulei. This is one of the cases from 2014. He reported a, uh, finding a dead body on the street to the police, and then the police arrested him, and suddenly they charged him with the murder. <laughs> and uh, when it was passed over to the prosecutors, one of the prosecutors said, what's wrong with your arm? You seem to have an injured arm, and he didn't want to tell them. And uh, there was kind of discrepancies in what he had confessed with what the actual physical evidence was, and uh, he hadn't actually confessed the first five police interviews, but only after that he confessed, you know. <laughs> so it was pretty clear that he'd been beaten and, and uh. told to, uh, you know, confess or you won't get out of here. And, and so with the, in this case, the, the, the prosecution, the, the prosecutor is basically saying, we won't even accept this case to, to be put on trial. This person has to be released, and he was released, because you can't just rely on a confession if it's if, if it doesn't go with the physical evidence and there's evidence of some mm. police, possible police brutality. That's quite unusual um, for the prosecutors to do that and, and especially at, at to circulate that kind of case publicly. It's, it's posted on the website of the procuratorate and circulated to all the courts around the country. Uh, and and there's, there's other examples that they have circulated those kind of cases to do with procedural rights and death penalty uh, cases where they have to be particularly careful not to convict the wrong person. Mm, mm. It's not just being soft on crime. It's saying if you convict the wrong person, then the actual person who committed the crime is getting off. Yep, of course. Yeah. Due to whatever mm. police carelessness, laziness, or corruption, etc. Mm. So, Colin, you're painting a very complicated and complex picture of China's legal system, and, and that's the reality of it, I guess. So. If we're going to distill this conversation in terms of what Australian journalists 
absolutely need to know about China's legal system and Australian companies. Are there any? What What would be the key themes you would you would like these groups to to understand better? Well, I would say, if you're just a uh, Australian business person who's going to China to do business, you generally are not going to have to worry too much about suddenly getting arrested for no reason. You know, as long as you follow Chinese laws, you don't sort of engage in like illegal. Uh, types of business, uh, and if it's a grey area, you have to actually try and avoid them. You know, mm. like the the sort of gambling casino yes. type businesses. You shouldn't expect that just because some local government official says, "Oh, we can get around the law," that you can, because they do have a legal system and they do enforce it. And it is getting better over time. Yeah, it's yeah, getting right. more systematic, I right, suppose. Right. Is so, so that's that one key right. point. The second point is to avoid those kind of very sensitive type areas or behaviours, which in a way it is quite predictable if you start getting involved in the rights defence of certain groups and trying mm. to promote um, social kind of activism mm. in China, mm. then then you're likely to get into trouble because the government is still very sensitive about any kind of opposition or uh, social organisation if it's not party control. Mm. So the system is definitely more predictable and and the, if you happen to get involved in a, in a criminal trial or a civil dispute, you can more or less get some sense of how it's going to work out. Your rights can be protected by lawyers, etc. But if you happen to end up as a opponent of the government, then yes. you'd be lucky to avoid prison time and being expelled from China, basically. Mm. Yeah. Okay, okay. So for an Australian company, it sounds to me like the message is is that things now are clearer, um, more transparent and more predictable than they were 10 years ago. So um, in that sense, there's improvement. Um, but perhaps if you're talking about these other areas, such as those involved in social organising and, and human rights, uh, there hasn't been much improvement there at all. Yeah, and I think... Um I would say that's that is a minority of the cases. You know, there is, uh, you know, over eleven million civil cases brought in Chinese courts by ordinary Chinese citizens every year. You know, so and the vast majority are just decided based on the law. Yes. So, okay. so we shouldn't overestimate the numbers, but the impact of those small number of cases is huge in terms of China's reputation mm-hmm. overseas, mm-hmm. and that's partly why I think the media here. In Australia, has such a negative view of China and Chinese investment, etc., because they assume that that is the case for everybody, okay, okay. rather than just being a sort of certain subset of sensitive type, legal, political type issues. Okay, Colin, I don't think I can summarise it any better than that, so I think we'll leave it right there. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. This is our final episode of the year. Thank you to all our listeners for tuning in in 2017, and we're looking forward to bringing you more of the ACRI podcast next year. You can listen to all our previous episodes by subscribing to the ACRI podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. To find out more about ACRI's research and events, visit our website, australiachinarelations.org. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at ACRI underscore UTS. Thanks for listening.